Well, I would invite you this morning to take your Bibles now and turn to the book of Romans, to the passage that we just read, Romans chapter 13. When I outlined Romans back in the fall of 2022, uh, it didn't hit me until just a few weeks ago that we would be on this passage on the Sunday before Independence Day. So I, I see that as God's divine orchestration. As a student, in the spring of 1974, I was a freshman in my second semester at Salina South High School in Salina, Kansas, and in that English class, we wrote our very first research paper. We had to collect note cards. We had to read and, and, and find quotes and write them down. And when we wrote the paper, we then had to type it up, which I had already taken typing the first semester so I could type and, and uh, just learn so much. One of the lessons I learned that stuck with me through college and through graduate school, through seminary, and even through postgraduate work was the value of primary sources. Primary sources of information are very important. And, and we learn through them when we, and primary sources of information would include things like letters. They would include things like diaries. They would include newspaper articles. They would include government papers and accounts and, and sources that could take you right back to, to sort of being in the room where it happened. We learn through primary sources how people thought at times before us. We learn through primary sources what led to decisions that were made. We learn through primary sources what decisions were made that might even be impacting us today. There is a process that happens for those who do these things where they look at ancient literature and they use certain process to validate the, the, the veracity, the truth of that literature. I can assure you today that the material we read in our Bible has been proven to be true, has been proven to be truthful, has gone back to primary sources. And so what we look at today is God speaking through his people in the time in which they lived. And I find it very interesting that God spoke into the culture of the time. And that's going to be very important for us as we look at Romans 13. Because I bring all that up to tell you that when we read our New Testament, when we go through and read the Gospels that were originally letters and what we call the letters or the epistles, Remember that we're reading primary sources, but remember this. We're opening and reading somebody else's mail from 2,000 years ago. Have you ever wondered what it would be like even 100 years, ago, 100 years from now when, when one of maybe your great-great-great-grandkids finds the data that has some of your old emails in it and begins to read them and how strange it will sound to them? We're reading someone else's mail. We have to remember that while we can learn from these letters, we weren't the original addressees. The New Testament letters weren't written to you and to me specifically. Yet God is faithful to preserve these letters, and through these letters there are timeless truths that we can apply 
in our lives because ultimately these letters come from God. He is the source and the authority of what we read. God allowed the human authors to write into their context, into their culture, in their language. He used their idioms, their situations, and he expresses his heart through that. That is one of the challenges I face week in and week out. When I sit down to work my way through a passage, I ask myself, what were the circumstances for writing this? What were the circumstances in which the original readers were living? What was going on historically that caused the writer to address certain situations? What do I know about the culture in which they lived? And then from all of that, what are the timeless lessons that I can draw from God's Word for us here today? The passage that we're looking at today has gotten a lot of scrutiny over the years. It's gotten a lot, and there are interpretations that go everywhere from this passage. Uh, and, and I think it's very important that we need to be careful when we look at the Word of God, and especially when we look at this passage. It was written between 57 and 59 A.D., or if you're really politically correct, you would say C.E. Uh, it was written in that time period. It was written in a time that was very different than 2023. And we need to be careful that we don't make what's called a one-to-one -one comparison. We don't live under an emperor. We don't live in an imperial situation. We don't live in a situation where Christianity was largely unknown. We live in a different time, and yet there's lessons. And all of that brings me to the first thing that we need to understand as we look at this passage, and we're going to use that drawing from what Paul understood. We need to understand the culture in which we live. We ought to be cultural observers. We need to understand the culture in which we live. The Apostle Paul knew the culture in which he lived. Paul was born a Roman citizen. That was a highly valuable thing to be. He was born a Roman citizen. He didn't earn his citizenship as some could. He was born a Roman citizen. He knew about Rome. He knew about the empire. Rome was a unique place. When Romans, as the letter, was delivered to the church of Rome by Phoebe, there was a guy by the name of Nero serving as, serving, didn't serve, as emperor, ruling as emperor. Nero had become the emperor in about 54 A.D. And he started out pretty good. Um, prior to him being there, there was government-sanctioned persecution. He stopped that early on. It's going to change down the road. Um, he stopped the gladiatorial contest. Nero stopped those in the beginning. Uh, those things were brutal and bloody and always resulted in somebody either dying or being maimed for life. And he said no more. He banned capital punishment. He even initially reduced taxes. Uh, he gave permission for slaves to bring accusations, civil complaints against unjust masters. 
There had been those who had plotted against him. And the rule was, when you became the emperor and you knew somebody had plotted against you, they're done. You're, they're out. They're, they're neutralized, as we say. They are gone. He stopped that. In fact, the emperor before him was a man by the name of Claudius. Claudius had 40 senators who opposed him executed. Nero initiated athletic competitions and poetry competitions, and he brought the theater in, all to be substitutes for the gladiatorial contests. And, according to the Jewish historian Josephus, he gave aid to the Jews. Now, a lot would change in Nero's rule. But when the book of Romans or the letter of Romans arrived in Rome, things were okay in that regard. But in the early growth of Christianity, most of the people of Rome thought that Christianity was just a sect of Judaism. They didn't pay much attention to it. The Jews, however, didn't see it that way. And you can read through your New Testament. They worked very hard, including in the early days, Saul, who became the Apostle Paul. They worked very hard to make everybody aware this is not a sect of Judaism. This is not what we believe. This is something that needs to be eradicated. It's, it's, it's subversive. And Christianity was not popular at all. And they worked hard to convince Rome we are not related in any way. The typical Roman held the Christian faith in kind of in suspect. For instance, the Christians would talk about partaking of the body and blood of Jesus. To the typical Roman, that sounded like cannibalism. The Christians would call each other brother and sister. And according to the letters they received, would greet one another with a holy kiss. And to the Romans, that sounded like being incestuous. Very few of the early Christians were wealthy. There were some along the way, but there weren't a lot. Most of the Christians came from the lower classes, the slave classes. And so, as a whole, the Christians were looked down upon. They're lesser. They're not like the, old, the upper classes. Another issue with Christianity that the Romans didn't like. Christians insisted on people giving up all other forms of worship. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians, you'll read Paul saying, how that you turn from idols to serve the true God. And so that was really something that the Romans didn't like. See, in Rome, there was, it was there, it was sometimes, depending on the emperor, bigger or smaller, but there was a thing called emperor worship, also called the imperial cult. And the idea was that you pledged your allegiance to the emperor and that maybe and at once a year you would go down to wherever the statue of the emperor was, wherever you lived in the empire, and you would bring a, a small sacrifice and just let everybody know, I am for the emperor. You see, that's unity. We need unity. The Latin term was Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And the peace of Rome was kept at the end of a Roman sword. And so the Christians wouldn't do that. 
And some believe that that, and in Rome, they thought that the, the one, one scholar says, emperor worship was the religious and political glue that kept society together. And so when you say, I follow Christ, therefore I'm not going to go and do emperor worship, it may not cost you your life in that moment, but if you were a merchant and you had a trade and you needed to sell your wares, typically you were part of a guild, a bunch of merchants that would get together and kind of help each other out, and you would be out of that guild. It could cost you money. It could cost you customers. It could cost you your livelihood. It's really important for us to remember, too, that politically, the recipients of the book of Romans had absolutely no voice when it came to the governing of the Roman Empire. They did not vote. They did not have representatives. The people hearing Romans read for the first time were powerless politically. So we can't see Romans 13 as somehow Paul giving the Roman Empire a comeuppance. The Roman Empire could have cared less about the Apostle Paul. The Romans 13 isn't about Paul telling Rome, this is how you need to do it. Romans 13 is Paul saying, here's how you need to live in light of the fact that you have no power. If we read 21st century realities into Romans 13, we, we err. Here's something else we know. Although Nero reduced taxes in 54 AD, Nero was a politician. It took him very, very few years to realize, oh, we need to increase taxes. The Roman historian Tacitus tells us that in 58 AD, now remember, we're saying this letter arrived somewhere between 57 and 59. So right in the middle of our time frame in 58 AD, there was a tax revolt in the city of Rome right about the time people were reading this letter. So here's what we have. We have this small group. Remember, we've said maybe seven or eight house churches in Rome, maybe 120 people, this small, politically powerless group of people believing and propounding a faith system that no one in the general citizenry can fully describe, a faith system that people are holding in suspect, saying, this is really strange, uh, and they are not the status quo. They're not willing just to go along to get along. There's suspicion. And so these people sort of had a target on their back. And and Paul's thrust from the standpoint of when is this, when you don't have to, don't go make political waves. Remember what precedes Romans 13. Live in harmony with one another. As much as it depends on you, live peacefully. Paul is saying the situation is tenuous. You're already suspect. So if you live lovingly and wisely as good citizens, as much as it depends on you, you're going to ultimately be more effective for the gospel. But what about us? If we're to understand the culture we live in, that's the culture they lived in. That was where they were. That was what they had to do. What about us? We are more empowered politically. We get to vote. 
We are in a republic based on democratic principles. We have representatives. Oh, I get it. Don't hear me looking at life through rose-colored glasses. We vote, and sometimes our candidate doesn't get in. We have representatives. Sometimes we don't feel like they represent us. But we still have a voice. But we also live in a post-Christian time. What I mean by that is we live in a time in which Christianity is no longer a dominant faith system. You know, I think back even in my lifetime when uh, on a Sunday you couldn't go to the mall. Well, we didn't have them. They were still being invented. But, you know, you couldn't go to the local shopping center. Well, you could, but it would be closed. Everything was closed. In fact, uh, I... When I started working uh, in, in retail sales at J.C. Penney in Salina, Kansas, they were just beginning to open on Sundays. So I would work on Sunday afternoons between, from 1 to 5. I, and then, I would, then the store would be closed. They were open for four hours on Sunday afternoon. And the idea was because people are in church. And then the idea was we close at 5 because there's evening church. That was kind of a Christian era. A post-Christian era says, we're open 24-7. A post-Christian era says, you know, church smirch, we got a ball game to play. Uh, it's the idea that these ideals that were held up there, they're not that much. It's, it's not that people aren't Christians anymore. It's that the culture thinks differently. That's where we live. We're in an increasingly self-centered time. And it shows itself in increasing anger in, low, in less civility, in outrage, in violence. We're in a time of great anxiety. You start reading the, the issues that, that, that doctors deal with more are more anxiety-based issues, uh, increased heart issues, and, and people seeing therapists more, and there's nothing wrong about therapists, but it's just there's a greater anxiety in our world. We're in a time of clear political divide in which the art of compromise, which is kind of the hallmark of our system, doesn't exist much anymore. That's our culture. How do we, how do we take these verses written almost 2,000 years ago and how do we draw lessons from them for us today? How do we draw lessons from an imperial, emperor-driven society, a class society where you hardly could move from one class to the next, whatever you were born, you ended up being, to this society where we say, you know, you, any person can still become present. You can be anything you want if you work hard enough, that kind of thing. How do we, how do we draw from this? Let me finish, draw three lessons and here's the first one. It's so simple. It's so basic. When I say it, you're going to go, duh, but I need to say it. We have to remember that God is always in charge. Remember that God is always in charge. Paul starts with that. Now, it's interesting how things grow. You, know, you get a small group of people together and they tend to work together. They have basic ground rules, whether they're written or not. You know, maybe you have a, a, a small group in your house. Maybe you're part of a book club or something. And there's just some basic ground rules. But as it grows, more structure is needed. 
And Paul reminds his readers that in God's grand master plan for humanity, he determined that human beings would need order and structure and rules for behavior. And as a result, he says, God is the one who's established government. What we have in these few verses is God's ideal for how government should work. Humanity is really, really good at messing it all up. But God gives us a pattern, a model. Paul writes, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Government exists, according to Paul, because God has established it. The word established means to put into place or to assign. If you'll recall, back in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, we spent a lot of time looking at God's sovereignty. And as a sovereign God who's very keenly aware of his creatures and who's aware of the whims of his creatures, God established this idea of government. But always remember, God is in charge. No matter what it looks like right now, God is in charge. I take great comfort in a passage in the Old Testament. It's in the book of Daniel. Daniel had heard that Nebuchadnezzar was just going to kill all of the, they called them magicians, Daniel and his three friends, taken captive in chapter 1 of Daniel, lived in Babylon, went to the Nebuchadnezzar School of Learning. Uh, they, they stepped up and said, you know what, we'll learn what we need to learn, but we're, going to, we're not going to eat this food that has been offered to idols. We're going to draw a line there. And, and, and they were able to, they used their voice, and as a result, God worked. Well, now Daniel gets a on the door from one of the guards saying, hey, you know what? I got to take you guys out and kill you. Why? Well, the, the king had a dream and nobody can tell him his dream. And uh, Daniel said, can you give me 24 hours? We'll give you 24 hours. And Daniel prays and his friends pray and God shows him Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And as his prayer of praise, Daniel prays this in Daniel 2 20 and 21. He says, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. Get this. He sets up kings and he deposes them. When I grabbed a hold of that truth, it really changed how I see things. I have never lost a moment's sleep over a presidential election in the United States of America. I don't even stay up to watch the returns because my God is in charge. I don't care who's in the White House. I get it. They can make all kinds of executive orders, the new way of governing. They can do anything they want. They can change things, change things by the whim. I get that. But you know what? They're not in charge. My God is in charge. And you know what? He can put them in that office. He can take them out. And, and, and you say, well, that's just idealistic. No, if I trust God, I don't worry about the circumstances. The Proverbs tell us this. 
The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. Proverbs 21.1, God's established government, he's still in charge. And Paul says, in an ideal world, verse 4, the government leaders are God's servants for good. Now granted, you and I can go through history, and we have example after example of example of leaders who were downright awful and evil. But if we really believe God is in charge, we know and fully believe he will hold them accountable. And if we really believe God is in charge, we know that God can work in spite of government regulations. When China closed because of Mao and, and, and it just kind of shut down for a while, People wondered about all the work that Hudson Taylor in the 1800s had done in China and all the work that had been done to bring the gospel to China. And they wondered, what's going to happen now? And when it opened back up, we discovered the system of house churches that still ranged throughout China. The word of God continued. A friend of mine was part of an international ministry that beams radio into all kinds of places that no one else can go including the countries of Iran and Iraq. And one of the things they broadcast, and I may have told you this story before, it grips me every time I'm reminded of it, they broadcast into Farsi. The man who does those broadcasts works under a pseudonym because he's putting his life at risk. That individual happened to be at a conference on the island of Cyprus. And two women who spoke Farsi and also English came up to him and said, Do you work for this organization? Yes, I do. We wish we could meet the person who preaches in Farsi because his words are being used by God and as he presents the word of God, many are coming to know him. And if we could meet the person who broadcast those, we would kneel down and kiss his feet because the Bible says how beautiful are the feet that bring good news. And they were talking to the man they were describing. God gets things done. So yes, the government may be oppressive, but God works. In an ideal sense, the the government is to keep things in order. And yet, God is able to work through government leaders who have no inkling that God is using them. I go back to Nebuchadnezzar. In the book of Habakkuk and in the books of Isaiah, we're told that Nebuchadnezzar, the one that Daniel served, Nebuchadnezzar, the one who invaded Jerusalem at the end of Jeremiah, destroyed the temple, took everything away, took people captive. God calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant, For punishment. Every year we celebrate Christmas. It was a heathen, pagan ruler named Caesar Augustus on the the emperor of Rome who woke up one day and said, you know what? We need more taxes. So we're going to do a census of the whole known world 
And we're going to have everybody return to the city of their birth, their origin city, and we're going to have them register so we can have more taxes. And I tell you, had he not done that, there would have been not a lot of motivation for a young man named Joseph with a pregnant wife named Mary to pack up and walk all the way from Bethlehem to, or from Nazareth to Bethlehem, probably about a three or four day hike so that Jesus could be born in the place where God wanted him to be born to fulfill prophecy. God worked through Caesar Augustus to move the entire known world so the prophecy could be fulfilled. So even with tyrannical governments that seem to thrive on human rights abuses and power plays and oppression, God works and still holds them accountable. If the government is established by God, God will hold them accountable. But what about us? Okay, that's the broad brush strokes of government. What about us? As God's people, we have a divine responsibility. As God's people, we have a divine responsibility, and it starts with the first clause. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. What follows, and what we saw last week, really falls under the category of overcoming evil with good. To be subject doesn't mean just to blindly obey. It means to place yourself under. It's a a choice. As we've mentioned, there was a tax revolt in Rome. Now, if you're a Jewish member of the Roman church, you're a Jewish believer, you, you grew up Jewish, you grew up following the law, you have all your life been oppressed. With the tax revolt, it's kind of like saying, oh yeah, it's our turn now. It's our turn. Now, if you're a non-Jewish believer, you want to stand with your people and say, yes, let's go. And so you're all, you know, let's go against the taxes. Let's, 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 the taxes are oppressive. Grocery tax in Illinois, all of a sudden the 1% tax came back. I got to get out of Illinois. You got to get out of Illinois if God tells you to get out of Illinois. That's something to remember. I hear that so often. Oh, you're getting out of Illinois. You know what? God called Charlene and I to Illinois. We would love to live in places like North Carolina and other places where we're closer to the South Carolina with our grand dog. It's warm, lots of golf courses, no snow to shovel. But God called us here. Make sure your decisions are decisions that God is calling you to do. God called those people to be there in Rome. So he's saying, no, you, you, yeah, this, this tax revolt may be happening. I get that, but you have a choice to make. God established government. And God's ideal is that government provides order, structure, and protection. And those who do wrong are brought to justice. And those who do right are protected. And Paul says... Part of being a good citizen who's going to live lovingly and wisely where God has placed you is to place yourself under the laws of the government. These people were unempowered. They had no voice. They had no means of recourse. They had no true representation. So they did their best to live within the rules that were there. So you might ask, okay, wait, time out, time out. What about when the government brings about something that is totally against what Paul teaches? What about when the government brings something against what is totally against the Bible? And built into this passage is a reminder. Because you know what? Civil disobedience sometimes needs to happen. 
Civil disobedience, standing up and saying, no, this is wrong and I'm not going to do it. It sometimes needs to happen. Paul says, the one in authority is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not hold the, bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servant, agents of wrath to bring punishment to the wrongdoer. Sometimes, even in standing for what is right, you might be looked at on, by the government as a wrongdoer. And so, when you step outside the laws of the government, no matter how unjust you might see them to be, be prepared to accept the consequences. The, the people in China and in other places, Iran and Iraq, who get caught having meetings that are considered illegal, go to prison. Back in the day in Russia, people who met out in the forests in the wintertime to meet and to worship and got caught went to Siberia. It happens. So when we say, I'm sorry, I'm going to step, I'm not sorry, I'm stepping outside of what the government says because God says this, be prepared that there might be consequences. As the first century would go on, Nero would become more and more self-absorbed. He would become more and more tyrannical. In fact, historians still believe he wanted to rebuild Rome into what was called Neropolis. Uh, that's the definition of self-absorbed, okay? Uh, and, and there was a, a fire that gutted one of the, the ghettos of Rome where a lot of the Christians lived and all, and he blamed the Christians. He persecuted Christians. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter were martyred under Nero's reign. It happens, and, and, and we've seen it time and again. But my responsibility is to be a good citizen. Verse 2, consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. So you and I are to first strive to be good citizens. And that includes paying taxes. And when I choose to do less, regardless of the reason or motivation, I must expect the consequences, even if I think they're unjust. We live, as we've already said, in a time where we're more empowered than our brothers and sisters in the first century. We have the right to vote. We have the opportunity to even enter the political process. And so how does Romans 13 apply to us? I want to summarize that answer, but let me summarize it first with just this sentence. It's the title of our sermon. It's the theme of this sermon. Live lovingly and wisely in your circumstances. Live lovingly and wisely in your circumstances. This whole section is bookended by a reminder to love. Verse 9, love must be sincere. Verse 10 of chapter 13, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. We're bookended by the divine law of love. That is the law that guides you and me as followers of Jesus in all circumstances. It is love that helps me and, and motivates me to live in harmony. It is love that motivates me as much as possible to be at peace with those that live around me. Love your neighbor as yourself in my interactions all day long. Remember my simple definition. Any person who crosses my path at a given moment is 
my neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. You love them regardless of their politics, regardless of their social views, regardless of their morality or lack thereof, regardless of their ethnicity. You and I set the tone of love and respect for all. That's the essence of verse 7. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. And what we'll see, Lord willing, next week is all of that leads into loving those around you. How do I live lovingly and wisely in my circumstances? I'd be a person who loves my neighbors, myself. Secondly, be a law-abiding citizen. That means being respectful of the offices of authority. The individual who holds the office may not, gender, may not generate respect, but you still respect the office. Follow the laws. Pay your taxes. Be a law-abiding citizen. Be a good citizen. Thirdly, pray. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, Paul makes it very clear. I urge then, first of all, that all petition, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and those in authority, that may, we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good. And pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Do you pray for President Biden? Did you pray for President Trump? Do you pray for Governor Pritzker? And not pray that they will just, you know, drop over. Do you pray that God will bless them, that God will guide them? that God will give them wisdom, that God will use them maybe even in spite of themselves. Paul says, pray for those in authority. Pray for God to continue to grant us our freedoms. Pray for the grace to manage when we feel our freedoms are being lost. Pray for those around the globe who don't have what we enjoy. Do you pray for your leaders? Fourthly, I would say make a difference with honor and respect. Living in harmony, living peacefully, means you make a difference where you can, but you do it with honor and respect. Matthew 5.13, Jesus tells us we're to be salt and light. The Roman church did not have a voice, but you and I do. Use our voices in the right way. Use your voice to stand up where you can, to human rights abuses and civil rights abuses and religious rights abuses, stand up. Remember to be a person who in using your voice is a person of humility and dignity and respect and who first pursues the course of living in harmony and peace. And we come full circle. Never forget that God is in charge. Never forget that God promises to exact vengeance. You can go back to chapter 12 and verse 26, uh, or verse 20, yeah, 26, that God is the one who will repay. Vengeance is mine, verse 19, I'm sorry. 
Vengeance is mine. I will repay. God will take care. Whatever is unjust now, God will set it right. God will take care of it. God holds each and every authority accountable. Human authority is all held accountable to God. I'm held accountable to God. You are held accountable to God. So if I really believe in the sovereignty of God, and if I really believe in his law of love, that I'm to to love my neighbors myself, then I will work on what I allow into my life. You see, I personally refuse to listen to or support voices that promote fear because God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. I refuse to support or listen to voices that that are angry and seem to foster angry because human anger doesn't accomplish the purposes of God. I don't listen to voices and allow voices into my life that are vitriolic. I don't listen to voices that are disrespectful and they denigrate and run down the character of another. Those aren't godly voices. God wants us to live lovingly and wisely in our circumstances and that is governed by the law of loving your neighbors yourself. And so you you do respect government because God's in complete control. You do follow the laws because God's in control. You do what is right to be a good citizen because God's in control. Paul was not speaking about politics as we know it. That was a subject that was totally foreign to his existence and experience. But he was keenly aware of the responsibility of citizenship. He calls his readers in the book of Romans, he calls you and me to be citizens who reflect the fact that we respect authority because we understand deeply that we serve a God who's in charge, who calls us to live lovingly and wisely in a world that since Genesis 3 has been about self-pursuit and not God-pursuit. Our standard is to first and foremost present ourselves to God, Romans 12.1, as living sacrifices That's our worship to God. Here, God, I'm yours. I'm your servant, and you've put me in this place for this time. Then we allow God to renew our minds. God, I don't want to conform to the patterns of this world. I don't want to conform to the argumentations of this world. God, transform me. How? Renew my mind. Renew my thinking so that I'm in line with what your word says, so that I love God with all my heart, soul, and strength. I love my neighbor as myself. And then it doesn't matter how the world works because the world is full of posturing and grandstanding and empty promises and self-promotion. And we swim, as it were, a little bit against the tide when we are transformed followers of Jesus who seek God and His will and love our neighbors as ourselves. That's how you live lovingly and wisely in your current circumstances. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for reminders this morning from the Apostle Paul. Lord, as much as we can read and discern from history, we still don't really have a clue of how difficult it was for him to live in his own place, in his own time, as a citizen of Rome, and to be pursued and persecuted and brought to trial simply because he preached the clear gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the freedom 
we have now, the freedom that we celebrate this week. May we not take advantage of it. May we not take it for granted. And may we be mindful of what it means to live lovingly and wisely in our current circumstances. And we will give you the glory and the honor and the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.